reading of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 3, and I invite your uh, reverent attention and hearing of God's word and faith from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The uh, creation account is um, a historic event, but it's also very unique in that it's also an eschatological event. It pretends things uh, yet in the future. Uh, And it's important to make those connections because they have a a dynamic impact, I think, on uh, our own understanding of, of our faith. So, so the transformation of Genesis 1 uh, is, uh, is now complete. Uh, if you recall very quickly, the uh, earth was without form and void, uh, and darkness was over it, and God comes and uh, begins to transform it. Uh, as you know, I don't think that part is a creation ex nihilo, Latin phrase, out of nothing, But certainly the creation of all of life is creation out of nothing. I mean, imagine the power, which is so evident here, of God creating all of life just by His Word. Incredible. Uh, So in in verses uh, 1 to 3, the physical creation is completed as planned. And then God does something very unique. He celebrates His own creation. as planned, from the foundation of the world. uh, God is executing everything that He has planned. Then He celebrates it. We are always cautioned not to celebrate or be careful about celebrating our own accomplishments. That doesn't apply to God because God is the greatest power. So He can brag we should be careful. Uh, nonetheless, the transformation recovery of the heavens and earth, including all of life, is completed and brought to an end. A uh, divine process is uh, finished. Uh, contextually, I remind you, uh, it is uh, by the divine word and exhibition of the power of God. Uh, prevailing influence on in our own uh, culture is uh, uh, we came into being through evolution. Obviously, this uh, is a competing revelation uh, we reject the former for the latter because the Word of God is true. Uh, it's an exhibition of the power of God. Uh, it's a unique power uh, because uh, it is a celebration of the solitariness of the divine power and all of His perfections because God needed absolutely nothing to affect it. Uh, furthermore, Uh, To use a construction metaphor, uh, there are no change orders or punch lists. If you've ever been involved in construction, uh, maybe at a home or uh, industry, 
our office buildings, there's always, there's always change orders. There's always punch lists. They don't apply to God because he engages in perfection and he's pleased with his work. It's accomplished, uh, verse two, uh, we are told, uh, in God's revelation in six days. And, and the phrase, uh, that God completed his work which he had done, means there's direct involvement, which to me is an overthrow of another competing theory, that is theistic evolution. Uh, certainly is uh, evolution as a theory uh, took hold in uh, the American Academy. Uh, many Christian academics uh, adopted it, uh, believed that God used evolution to create, that was his process. Uh, this text is overthrowing that as well. God did it directly by his word. Uh, and that God rested on the seventh day, not obviously because he was tired, uh, rather it was finished. He finished his work. Then he stands back to behold the glory of it and said it was very good. And now he's going to celebrate and rest. There's a uh, New Testament uh, analogy to this and the spiritual creation by Jesus Christ. And that's the eschatological event that has occurred, it will occur in the future, but will occur repeatedly uh, until uh, uh, eternity. Hebrews chapter 11, pardon me, uh, chapter 1 verse 3. Speaking of Christ, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did He sit down? Because He finished the work. Imagine, we should imagine, we must imagine the majesty of finished work of Christ. Uh, because on the cross, He finished the work of purifying His people. And then He will dispatch the Spirit to apply it, to be sure, but He finished the work. So I, 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 I love the title of John Murray of his book, Redemption Accomplished. He finished it. No change orders. Redemption accomplished and then applied by the Great Spirit. Incredible, uh, the history and the story and the outworking of our redemption. So the creative word by sovereign power has uh, executed the divine will. It's the only, only power in all the universe that can do that. You and I will lots of things. On many occasions, they don't come to pass. And oftentimes, what we will comes undone. Not so with God. I remind you there is a difference between creation and providence. We're looking at creation. In celebration, God blesses, verse 3, and sanctifies the day. He sets the day apart. It's the whole point of sanctification. He sets it apart. It becomes a special day, the seventh day. It's instructive that the verb rest is used three times in these three verses. It forms uh, the basis of our rest on the Sabbath day. For us, 
realized because of the resurrection, I think, uh, the first day of the week. In celebration of what Christ did. Why we set the day apart and go hear His Word. The Word that created. The Word that created the physical universe and the entirety of the spiritual universe. We celebrate it uh, because He is so ordained. I mean, I understand. Oh gosh, I gotta go hear lecture number 43 from the pastor. Hope I can stay awake. You're not celebrating my word to be sure. You come to celebrate the one true God whose life and uh, energy uh, create and give life to His church to sustain, keep, and preserve. That's why we come to celebrate. Sometimes men like me get in the way. I mean, I, I understand that. But we, we, we come for His glory to celebrate it. We set it apart for worship where we celebrate the preaching of the divine Word that created us. Uh, remind you the reality of that. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word then goes out into His creation and calls His people unto Himself. John 10, no man can come to the Father except the Spirit draw him. The divine Word going out. Another reason we come to celebrate, to acknowledge. And we rest in God's physical and spiritual creation. In that sense, we image God. As believers in His divine Word, we image Him. He rested, we come to rest and to celebrate. It's one of the great reminders of the spiritual creation study that a bit more in a moment, but uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you uh, uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The greater spiritual uh, fulfillment of the rest of Genesis chapter 2. I will give you rest. Context is the spiritual leaders of Israel had perverted the day, so they uh, loaded it with their traditions and laws that it became an incredible burden rather than a day of celebration. It's an illustration of this uh, recent history in uh, New York City. Uh, there was an Orthodox uh, Jewish woman uh, who needed to provide uh, food for her family and uh, uh, because uh, on the Sabbath day she couldn't cook, so before the day started, she took a hot plate and turned it on low and put a meal on it. And then she couldn't touch it because you can't do work as an Orthodox Jew on the Sabbath. And turning the dial off would be work. Well, if you've ever been in a kitchen and ever put anything on a stove, even the lowest possible heat, at some point, it's going to boil. In her case, it started a fire that killed all five of her children. A reminder that in, in certain circles, they so load up with traditions and laws and you gotta do this and you can't do that, that it becomes an incredible burden that really, uh, can cause death. I think it's most beautifully illustrated in our own tradition in Martin Luther. He was terrorized of the judgment of God. 
And he began to do works and he worked hard and he became a monk and he gave his heart and soul to monkery. And it was a burden that just he couldn't get rid of. He went to Rome and he walked on his knees and on and on. He was plagued by a very important spiritual question. Have I done enough? And my friend, if you understand who you are as a finite person and that you're dealing with an infinite God, the answer to that question is you could never do enough to gain God's favor. And that is the point of the cross, that He has done enough on the cross and finished the work forever for His people. Because He can do enough. And that's another reason that we come on the Sabbath day, if you will, on our Sunday, to celebrate the grace and the majesty of God. And that we can leave aside all the works to gain God's favor. There are some Christian traditions, as you know, where you have to continue to work. And when you fail in your works, you go to the priest. And the priest gives you some work to do. To say some prayers, and to rub some beads, and to write a check, and to do whatever. Because you got to work to get out of purgatory or whatever you got to get out of. That, that is contrary to Hebrews chapter one and the majesty of the finished work of our Savior. So that is our origins, uh, if you will, scientific phrase, our cosmology. Uh, let's, let's look at the eschatological reality of it. Because the spiritual creation is completed as well, as planned and also celebrated. We know that the physical creation is a type and the anatype uh, is an intensified uh, fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, turn with me if you have your Old Testament to uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 65. It's a great text. It speaks of rest uh, and uh, the greatness of the creation uh, of our God, 65, verses 17, 18. God says, for behold, I create. Notice, notice fulfillment of Genesis 2. God is working again. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered to come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Context is uh, a new heaven and earth that promised to a faithful remnant among Israel. A faithful remnant. That's true even of the visible community of the people of God that we call the church. God saves a faithful remnant. It's a theology of Romans chapters 9 to 11. The verb create, again an allusion to Genesis, and Isaiah engages the promise of a new creation where God will overturn the theology of the judgment of captivity that's foretold in uh, prophecy of Isaiah. Because they became idolatrous, he kicked them out of the garden land. It's going to occur again in Genesis 3. Kicks them out of the garden land, and now he's letting them uh, go return home. The far fulfillment begins in a spiritual creation climaxing in the physical reality of the eternal estate where the rest becomes entirely beautiful and majestic and a greater fulfillment. Two phases. 
We have a spiritual creation in three texts in the New Testament. More than three texts. I'm just simply going to look at three. First is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He makes us new. Notice the prepositional phrase, in Christ. If you're not in Christ, it doesn't apply to you. You still belong to the old. The old still owns you. But in Christ, he sets us free. The context is, is remarkable, 2 Corinthians. Because as you know, if you've ever studied the book, the church is uh, cashiering Paul. Firing him. They're attracted to new teachers. And Paul's argument is that in the new creation, we are reconciled to God. And if in the new creation we're reconciled to God, we ought to be reconciled to His apostles. It applies in the church as well. None of the elders in this church are apostles, to be sure, but it's an important realization there that's driven from the theology of reconciliation and the fact that we are new in Christ. Second text is uh, Galatians. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 15. Uh, a reminder of, of the beauty of the new creation. Uh, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, uh, but a new creation. Uh, the fruit of the new creation is almost all of the distinctives of the Old Covenant are terminated. Circumcision is no longer mandatory because God's going to circumcise the heart spiritually. The greater fulfillment of it. All the food laws. Yeah, you can, you can eat your favorite barbecued ribs, pulled pork. Food laws no longer apply. They did to Israel. All the feast days, on and on. Based on what? Divine spiritual creation by divine sovereign fiat. Incredible what God is able to do because all the law is fulfilled in Him. Lastly, Ephesians 2.10. Paul transitions from the new birth and the gift of faith in the new birth says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God hath long before ordained that we should walk in them. Incredible our salvation uh, by God's sovereign power through Jesus Christ. A uh, reminder of what a measure of that means in Ephesians 4 uh, verses 22-24 to that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted. Verse 23, and you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, and you put on the new self. Description of the new creation. These things happen to us. We put off, we put on. We're being renewed by the grace of God. And the blessings of phase two are the total irreversible eradication of the curse. 
going back to uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 65. Just a reminder that the creation is an eschatological event and its beginning fulfillment has started in Christ. And we are the product. Because we're in Christ. I trust you are in Christ. By faith in His finished work. Uh, If you look at Isaiah chapter 65 uh, in verse 19. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. All sorrow will be eradicated when the creation reaches its fullness, its zenith, and the end time creation. Think about that. No more tears. Everybody in this room has cried. Tears of sorrow. Sadness over who knows a wandering son or daughter or a failure of a business venture. Things we give our hearts to that don't come to pass. The end time creation and all of its glory. Never, never again will there be any sorrow or crying. Uh, Secondly, life eternal. No longer will there be in it an infinite who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at an age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100, uh, again, age is no longer. We become uh, eternal in eternity. Thirdly, verses 21 to 23, this change is made irreversible. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. It's a reference to the invasion where uh, the armies invaded, took their houses, took their lands, displaced them, created great sorrow. Uh, But the greater fulfillment is in eternity. Made irreversible. And every need is met. Every need. Look at verse 24. Shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. We won't have to ask. God will fulfill it immediately by His every provision. What an incredible blessing. The majesty of God. And then the final blessing, peace, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. And there shall be no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. In the old creation, there was predation in the animal kingdom. Hatred and violence in the human kingdom. This ends forever uh, by God's sovereign power. We experiencing incredible explosion of lawlessness in our own country, not in God's kingdom in the eternities. No more predation. 
divine agent, of course, of the spiritual creation, uh, is uh, Christ, our great Redeemer. Uh, Apostle Paul picks up this theology in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 as he extols the majesty of Christ. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is proof of the preeminence of our Savior in all the creation. It's also an indirect uh destruction of all false religions. The modifiers of the first verb sweep upon us in successive waves. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible. It means that Christ has no rival in the spirit world. Uh, The modifiers of the second, for Him and through Him, that He holds all things together. So that the people of God owe their spiritual existence to His preeminence and power and majesty. His superiority. That our life, order, sustainment, and purpose are in Him. Uh, And Paul transfers this uh, to our redemption, related in the reality of uh, in verse 18. He was the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. He conquered death. He's the only God-man that conquered death. I love the phrase of, I believe it was Kidner, uh, who says uh, at the grave, all other shepherds must turn back. Save Christ. He owns death. A reminder of uh, spiritual death as well as physical death. Christ is the preeminent answer. If you're not a Christian, you can only flee to Him. He's the only one that can give life. And life He gives to its utmost fullness. And the spiritual benefits that accrue to us uh, are sourced here in Colossians chapter 1 as Paul praises uh, the superiority of Christ above all things because of His creative power. Thus Christ is Lord of both the physical and the spiritual creation uh, with again the the point that He might have first place in everything. Now whatever you do, do it to the Lord because He has first place in it all. So that in Christ we have rest now. We don't work to earn our salvation. It's over and done with didn't even apply in the Old Testament because Christ again was the creator of spiritual rest for them as well. It's clearer for us in the greater revelation of the new. In Christ, we have rest now. And as Isaiah has just told us, we have rest forever. In Christ. I mean, think about it. All of us have done things that have just worn us out. Figuring taxes wear me out. Filling out all the paperwork wears me out. Barbara, I gotta go take a nap. This is innervating. 
rest in Christ. Be gone forever and ever. And then, of course, uh, the greater reality in eternity. And that our eternal rest is in our Savior. Again, it's the rest that has begun. That's the point of Matthew 11.28. Come unto me, Christ says, and I will give you rest. Again, He's destroying all other religions of the world. We have this faulty notion, well, there's many roads to the top of the mountain and the palace. No, there's only one road. Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. But the reality that we're studying is the only one who gives spiritual rest and the promise of the greater fulfillment and eternal rest. So, two fulfillments. Spiritual and eternal. This is brought home uh, the author to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. You know, the context of Hebrews is a number of warning passages uh, because uh, some of the Jews that have come to faith uh, are thinking about leaving it. And the author is trying to interdict them, telling them if you leave, your faith never was genuine. So rethink what you're contemplating. It's probably that they'd come under some form of persecution. If there's anything that will cause someone to uh, question their faith, it's persecution. If there's anything that causes us to, maybe I need to rethink this and uh, maybe go back to the old way of life. And that's exactly what they are considering doing. And the author is writing in his warning passages to interdict them. Uh, Hebrews 4, the context is spiritual failure of Israel from Psalm 95. Israel failed in Psalm 95 and they're getting ready to fail again. Uh, There is a contrast, thank God, uh, to we who have believed. Um, Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. Uh, There is a clause that's very important there, if we hold fast. Those who truly partake of Christ hold fast. They can't defect because uh, the Spirit of God has given them new life. Can't be changed. New life that is so powerful that they have no interest whatsoever in error. It's a theology of 1 Johannine Epistle. It's an incredible reality. Jesus says in John 6.45, my people are taught of God. When God teaches, His people learn. Giving evidence by not holding fast that they were never ever truly of Christ's spiritual creation. I look at 4.3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Well, coming to Christ, we enter spiritual rest. We don't return to old religions like they're considering doing. The Old Covenant of the Old Testament. I believe the enter that rest is a technical, uh, grammatical future present in that by believing we will, will enter rest. 
And that believing is the whole of one's life, not in some momentary or passing fancy like those that are the recipients of this letter. And the prospect of failure is so stark, and that's exactly what our author is using to stir them, but more importantly, to stir us to continue throughout our lives trusting by faith in the provisions of our Savior and the rest that He has for us in the future. Lest we become like Israel. And in Psalm 95, they were shut out. Difficult theology, but simply the perseverance of the saints, uh, which was one of the great planks of the Protestant Reformation. And when God saves, He saves forever. And He energizes them forever to be faithful so that they will persevere. And they persevere because He perseveres in pursuing them. Couched in the terms of the great hymn that we sang, Oh, for the love of Jesus that never leaves us, always energizes us, always present, rolling us into eternity. That's the point of these texts. Oh, for the love of Jesus. More importantly, there's a futuristic orientation in this final rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the one who has entered his rest has also himself rested from his works as God did from him. Did from, uh, from his. You can see the allusion there to Genesis 2 verses 1 to, 30, to 1 to 3. That there is a future rest for us in the heavens. That rest has begun in Jesus Christ and His spiritual creation. It will pursue us until the end and we will enter the great futuristic rest described in Isaiah chapter 65. No sorrow. No death. No predation. No hatred. No anger. Just simply the effulgence of the divine glory pressing upon us in all of its majesty without end. Present yet future. It's the certainty of what God has for us. A greater rest to come. Uh, that's why, for example, in Hebrews, we read phrases like, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Because of all that it means. In this life, we think about what? Well, my 401k was ravaged last year. Oh my, I lost so much. Or maybe you've lost a business deal. Lost a sale. If you're a professor, you lost a prize student. God loses none of His own. Think of the words of Jesus. Of all He has given me, I lose none. That's why we rest in Him, the majesty of what He's done, His completed work, and all that it means for the future. And the future prospect is a motivation for the journey to keep on believing. Believing in and persevering in the faith because of all that awaits us. 
I mean, we could do no other because of the uh, infusion of the power that comes from the Spirit of God. That God pours out upon all of His sons divine majesty, grace of God. Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So God's people do. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. It's the eternal rest. Rest from all of our spiritual deeds. It will follow us. They don't cause our salvation. The work of Christ causes our salvation. Only He could work for us because we were spiritually dead. But He makes us alive. We do good works to glorify Him because He has preeminence in everything. Including setting the Sabbath day aside and treating it special and celebrating it for what it is. Namely, worshiping the preeminence, majesty of our Creator. In Him is the greatest rest of all time. We own it now spiritually. We also will have it in eternity. Our authors are celebrating the spiritual rest we have in Christ in light of our redemption and the new creation with the ultimate fulfillment in the eternal estate. Phase two. Phase two. Already, but it's not yet. The already drives us to continue on. The already entices us to be faithful, to pursue, to run with endurance because of the not yet of the eternal estate where we will imitate God and rest forever in the new heavens and the new earth. World without end. So that God's quoting very prominent uh, academic life of the church, Greg Beale, God's resting in Genesis 2, verses 2 to 3, pointed forward to the eschatological resting of his people. Historical yet eschatological. As important, we celebrate the prospect that rest and worship has in our Savior looking back to the cross, accomplished, and forward to His coming again to consummate what He started in us. By His sovereign power, glory, majesty, preeminence. In Christ we have rest now and rest in the future. So that these creation accounts are about Christ now with a tantalizing, tantalizing reminder that the best is yet to come.